0: From a public speaking perspective, it's very poor form to open with a joke. And it's probably worse to do it from the pulpit. However, a lawyer, a priest, and a rabbi were walking down the road. That's it, I'm not going to go any further, that was the, that was the joke. <laughs> My sermon today is titled, A Lawyer, a Priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'm sure this is quite a familiar story to most of us. A favorite among vacation Bible schools and among Sunday school lessons. But maybe there's a little more to it than meets the eye. And if not, then it's definitely worthy of a reminder. Luke 10, beginning with verse 25, reads as follows. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, to him, It is written in the law. How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But... "'He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "'And who is my neighbor?' "'And Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, "'and he fell among robbers who stripped him "'and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. "'Now by chance a priest was going down that road, "'and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. "'So likewise a Levite.' When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, It is the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, I included maybe a few more verses than we normally get in our Sunday school stories. Because understanding the context is key to understanding the point of the parable, of the message. So, who is the focus of this story? Many, and in fact, most would say, well, clearly the Good Samaritan. I'm not so sure that's the case. I think we forget about the lawyer, the one who Jesus was talking to, the one who he was addressing. Well, clearly, the Good Samaritan is the focus of the point of the story. The thing that we need to learn is in looking at the lawyer. At least that's how this translation explains his title. And when we say lawyer, he was basically a lawyer of the Mosaic Law. So he understood, he taught, he knew the law, he knew the code, he knew what he should do. Now, we can read this, and it says that he stood up and put him to the test... Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means. It's unlikely that he was trying to trick him. It's unlikely that he was uh, being hostile. And in fact, it's probably more likely that being a trained man of the law, right, he was trying to test him to see whether or not he was a true prophet, right, as we should do of our own preachers as well, to test them to make sure that they are speaking the truth. This is an appropriate thing to do. So I mean it could have been that he was trying to trick him. It could have been he was being hostile. But very likely he was legitimately asking him a question to see how he would answer. Interesting to note though that Christ saw through the inquiry to meet an unseen need in the lawyer's life. Let me repeat that. Christ saw through the honest question to see the heart of the man who asked the question and the need that was deeper than the question. And many times if we present ourselves to the Lord, he will do the same thing to us. We will ask for something. We will ask a question and we will get something that we weren't expecting Because what we didn't realize is what we were asking with our minds is not what we should have been asking with our hearts. And God will give us more than we expect sometimes. I think sometimes this is why we're afraid to ask. Because we're worried about the answer. So, here comes the question of all questions. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a very important question. This is one question. That's why I said the question of all questions, right? Right next to it is who do you say that I am? But the two are related. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, whether we have individually phrased it this way, or really sat down for a long period of time and tried to work out the answer to this question, I guarantee you that all of us have sat and wondered and pondered what happens in the end. What is the point of life? If there is a life that comes after this, what must I do to inherit this life? This is a very important question. I think it's a question ultimately about salvation and one that we must all confront. But Christ kind of redirects him a little bit. He uses what we call the Socratic method, named after Socrates, who did this a lot, by asking a question to give an answer. This is a method of teaching. You'll notice... I do this a lot on my own. I will present you with a question and then talk you through the answer. It's a very valuable way of teaching. It's not trickery. It's not inappropriate. But it has a lot of value to it. And let me explain why. So Jesus answered and said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how do you understand it? Jesus does something brilliant here. He sets the discussion among a common thing that they had, the law. So he asks him the question, bases it on something they have in common, which is the law. and says, how do you interpret this thing that we both agree on? Right? And in doing that, Jesus is now in a position to evaluate his answer not the other way around. It's not a trick, but you see how smooth that is? I think sometimes we fail to appreciate what the scriptures say about being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Jesus was brilliant. And all the time, he would just ever so slightly turn it around. And I think we need to be more like that too. Because rather than answering the question forthrightly and allowing this person to then evaluate what the Son of God was saying, right, he asked him a question and is now going to evaluate his answer. Hmm. So we have the question of all questions What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then we get the answer of all answers. The lawyer correctly quotes paraphrases two verses the first is deuteronomy 6 5 remember he was a lawyer of the law of the uh, scriptures deuteronomy 6 5 says this you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart with all your soul and with all your might so good so far then he quotes leviticus 19 and 18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is a nearly identical answer to what Christ himself said that we have recorded at least twice, Matthew 22 and 34 and Mark 12 and 28, where he also says, The greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, commands, hang all the other commandments. So Christ tells him, you have answered correctly. Wouldn't that be encouraging? But that's not the end of the sentence. Then he goes on and says, do this and you will live. There's the challenge, and we're going to talk about this. So the, 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 uh, the lawyer answered correctly, love God, love my neighbor. And Christ says, yes, you are incorrect. You have interpreted the law correctly. You are, in fact, to do these things. Now you have to actually do them. And then we get into the next verse. So We've got the question of all questions. What do I do to inherit eternal life? We have the answer of all answers. Love God, love your neighbor. And then we have the buts of all (laughs) buts. Here we go. But he desired to justify himself and said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now we see the rub, right? Now we see where the rubber meets the road, if you will. He desired to justify himself. Let me pause there and ask this question. How many times have we tried to justify ourselves before God? How many times have we tried to justify ourselves before God? Probably more than we care to think about. So we can be really quick to criticize this lawyer, but we must remember that we do the exact same thing all the time. We justify our behavior, we justify our beliefs, we justify our speech, we justify everything about us to God and to other people constantly. It's very comfortable to tell someone else that their sin is wrong, but we sure don't want you talking about my own, do we? Hmm. We begin to justify, well, it's okay if I do it because fill in the blank. He thought to do this as well. So here's something important. I want you to listen closely. The lawyer gave a correct answer. It was true. I'm going to teach you two words you may have never heard before. Orthodox, you've probably heard that one, or orthodoxy, and orthopraxy. Now ortho means to be uh, straight or correct. And you might think of an orthodontist, right? Right? So ortho, meaning to straighten or correct, dauntist being teeth, right? So ortho, straight and correct, doxy means a right practice, I'm sorry, a right teaching and a right doctrine. This is absolutely vital for believers to have right and correct doctrine. If you believe things that are not true, it will cause problems for your life. This is why that I preach from Scripture the truth to teach you, orthodox, the right beliefs to have, the correct things to do, the correct things to understand, the correct beliefs, who Jesus is, why he came, how long it took to create the world, how we should do certain things. This is vital and fundamental to who we are as a people. We must make sure that we have the right understanding, the right beliefs, and the right doctrine, orthodoxy. But you also have to have right action, and that's what we call orthopraxy. Praxy means you're doing something. So it's the behavior and the practice that comes from right teaching. Okay, so I'll stop using the big words, although I'd love for you to remember them. Here's the summary. It is not enough just to know the correct answer. You must do the correct answer. But to do the correct answer, you have to know the correct answer. They're combined, yet they're different. And it's really, really important. Because I truly think this is largely the focus of this entire parable. It's not the Samaritan. It's the question for the lawyer. It's the question for us. The lawyer knew the right answer, but he wanted to justify himself because he was not doing the right thing. That's dangerous. Similarly, it's dangerous to be doing something that you think is right, but not knowing whether it is right. Okay? This is why throughout our entire Christian lives from the moment that we are saved, no matter how young we are or old we are, until the point that we do know the answer to this final question, where do we go when we die? We experience that firsthand. We should be growing both in the knowledge that we have of what we are to do, the right thinking, the right doctrine, and also doing more of the right practice, living out our faith. It takes both of those things. We must know what is right and do what is right. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 15, says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears fruit. Good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Practicing what we know to be true is absolutely vital. And the scriptures say that's how we know one another, by what they produce, by the things that we do. Now, I want to be very careful that no one runs away and begins thinking that what I'm telling you is that there is a works-based salvation, that you have to be so good in order to answer that question of all questions. Let me unequivocally tell you the orthodox answer is the right correct answer is you will never ever ever be good enough to get into heaven end of statement there is only one way into heaven and that is through the death burial and resurrection and your faith in jesus christ end however Our understanding of what is right should and will result in right action. Understanding who Jesus is, understanding how we get into heaven, will result in the fruit, the correct action, us loving our neighbor. And if it doesn't, then we don't truly understand the truth. Because when we are saved, our life changes. Now, do we live this out perfectly? No, but it should be our desire and it should be something that can be seen. Titus three, eight says, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, right belief, right practice, may be careful to devote themselves to doing right action, right practice. What is good? This is what we're supposed to do. Listen again. I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, this is how important both sides of these coins are. If you read the book of Romans, you will read 11 chapters, maybe it's 10 chapters, of orthodoxy, right teaching. This is how you think, this is what is true. This is who Christ is. This is how he came. This is why he came. This is how you are saved. This is why there is no excuse for someone who doesn't believe. And you get all the way through the first 11 chapters, and then you get to chapter 12 in Romans, and there's that wonderful word, therefore. Understanding all the right doctrine, therefore I beseech you, my brothers, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We go all the way through the right doctrine and then get to the practice. Now do this. Ephesians is set up in a very similar way. The first four chapters are doctrinal. This is how you should think. This is how you should believe. This is what is true. And then it goes into this is now what you do. This is how you live. It's very important that we understand this. Now, before I go into the actual parable here, you see how long I took on those first few verses. Let's talk about what a neighbor is. In Greek, the word neighbor means someone who is near. Okay. In Hebrew, it means someone you have an association with. Someone you have an association with. So here's the question. Is someone who I don't know even exists my neighbor? Not until I'm associated with them or I'm near them. Okay, let's keep that thought for just a minute, okay? Our neighbors are people that we are associated with or that we're near. There are, what, billions of people in this world? I don't know hardly any of them. I know all of you. So, you're my neighbor. The people who live in my neighborhood who I see and am near... They're my neighbor. The person who I have no idea who he is, but I see him, his car broke down to the side of the road. As I come near, he becomes my neighbor. Hmm. Let's keep that in mind for just a minute. Here's what the lawyer, I think, realized. He was told he was correct, but he was challenged to actually live out his convictions, and he realized One of two things, and maybe both. Either one, he cannot keep the law. Can you truly love your neighbor as yourself? No. You can't do it. You can try. You will not do it perfectly. Maybe he realized that. Or maybe he realized there's a group of people that he doesn't want to love. Maybe it was both. Let's look at the parable for a minute. I'm actually going to go kind of quick through the parable because most of us know that part. Two men, a Levite and a priest, both of whom who knew the law. Right? Again, that idea that they had the head knowledge. They knew exactly what the law was. And the law in Leviticus said to what? Love your neighbor. As in the person who's dying, literally dying on the side of the road, You're supposed to help them by the law. These are the people who teach the law. And what did they do? They just passed by. They went to the other side of the road. Now, I don't know how big this road was. It probably wasn't, you know, like a massive highway like we have today. Right? Right? I don't know if by going to the other side of the road it was like a few feet and they were just like, I don't want anything to do with you. Or if it was one of those like, I'm going to put my hand in front of my eyes and just pretend like you're not there and I'm just going to keep walking. Maybe it was a combination of both. But either way, they purposefully avoided what they saw. This man who was injured became their neighbor the moment that they knew he was there. And their legal Required duty that they knew was to help this person. And they did what? They chose not to do it. They showed no compassion, no love. They did not live out what they were supposed to do. They had no orthopraxy. They did not behave right. The Samaritan, on the other hand, showed love and compassion. Now, understand there was a deep rivalry between the Jews and the Hebrews and the Samaritans. They did not get along. And in fact, you did not even associate with these other people. You would not touch them. You would not talk to them. You would have nothing to do with them, even though they all lived in the same community. This is a long-standing rivalry between two cultures who lived together. They were therefore what? Neighbors. Right? Right? The Samaritan went out of his way to care for the injured man. He took the supplies he had. He treated him there. He put him on his animal, walked him to a hotel, if you want to call it that, someone who'd take care of him, and paid two two full days' worth of wages of whatever he was making to take care of him, and maybe more. We don't have the account. Maybe he came back and the innkeeper was like, yeah, yell me more. Here's the contrast between those who know and don't do and those who know and do. This is the important thing to understand. This is why this story is deeper than what we often get in Sunday school or VBS. And I'm not belittling Sunday school or VBS. We start with the basic facts of a story and we build into the doctrine and the practice. You see? It's okay to start with that. So here's the question Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? We read these scriptures and we often forget that Jesus is addressing a living, breathing person, this lawyer you know there were always crowds, right? So this lawyer, as again, I don't think he was out to get Jesus. I think he was really going to test him. So he stands up, likely, I'm assuming here in front of a large crowd, challenges Jesus. Jesus flips it around on him, asks him the question, which he answers correctly, but then gives him a parable when he tries to justify himself, which in front of the entire crowd likely embarrassed him. We all know lawyers don't like to be embarrassed. Apologies to any lawyers. So he asks them the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? That'd be really hard to answer, wouldn't it? Because there's only one answer, which is what? The Samaritan. But but notice, that's not what he said. Read it again. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And in verse 37, we get the lawyer's reply. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. Hmm. Maybe that indicates he had a really deep issue. Maybe his dislike and hatred of the Samaritans ran so deep he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Because the question was, which of those three? The Levite, the priest, the Samaritan. And his answer was the one who showed him mercy. Now that technically is correct, but probably indicates there's some deeper issues going on there. Here's the application For us, these are questions that we must also ask ourselves. The greatest question what happens after I die? Who do we say that Jesus is? Are we going to give the right answer and do the right thing, or just pick and choose one or the other? Some of us may feel called to make neighbors. What does it mean to make a neighbor? It means to acquaint yourselves with someone. And every time you do that, you then must follow the command to what? To love them. Maybe this has been really, really difficult in this last year. Because we've actually been around less people. But does that mean we're acquainted with less people? I don't think so. Does this cover digital platforms? Big head shake this way. So that means that comment that you left better be neighborly better be loving better be compassionate the friend or family member you haven't seen for a year better be loving because they're still your neighbor say you're driving down the road and you see somebody maybe has a flat tire Pull in the car behind them to help them, and as you get out, it's a bumper sticker. It says, "Vote for Biden." Uh oh. Let that sink in for just a second. Or we can flip this. You get out of the car, and you walk up to help the poor person they get a big red hat that says Trump on it. Uh Uh-oh. Or worst of all, they're an independent. And they can't decide which one's evil and which one's good. I hope you hear the sarcasm in my voice. But this idea, right, that we would not be friendly, loving, compassionate, and neighborly to someone because of a different political view has got to not be something we consider. 100% serious. What about the friend you have or the acquaintance you make or the person you meet on the side of the road, the person who's in the chair next to you at work or the table across from you at school who's an atheist, Or an agnostic? Or a Catholic? Or a Mormon? Or just non-Baptist? You still have to love them? Yes. What about the social justice warrior? Or the person who's woke? Or the fascist? Or the communist? Do you see where I'm going with this? None of this matters when that person enters my life. I am required to love them and have compassion for them. End of story. And if I don't do it, even if I know the correct thing is to do it, I am wrong, just as wrong as this lawyer. What about the person who's a drug user or a criminal, someone who abuses other people, a misogynist, a liar, someone who's really poor, dirty, someone who's unlovable, overlooked by society. I think you see the point. It does not matter who they are. If you come into contact with them, they are your neighbors. Some of you will choose to make people your neighbor. Let me be clear about this. I mentioned before when I define neighbor as someone you are in contact with or are around, have an association with, some of us will choose to go and make neighbors. You will choose to go on a mission trip. You will choose to take it upon yourself to fund an organization to help people you don't know. And that's okay. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. My responsibility is to my neighbor, which are those I have association with and those who I'm in contact with. I cannot be held responsible for the billion-some-odd people I don't know. You can choose to go to them, especially if the Lord tells you to. And some of you have experienced this. But you have to be a neighbor to those who you are associated with. People you see at school, the people you see at work, your family, your family your friends, your enemies, the people you meet at a restaurant, the server who brings you your food, the person who takes your order, the person who delivers something to your house or your home or your office, the people you have in contact with you. This is why over and over again I stress, do not go out and try and change the world. Change those who you are around, one interaction at a time. Now, I want to go back to verse 31. It says, Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. That phrase kind of caught me in an odd way. So I looked it up. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the New Testament. By chance. By happenstance. You could translate it, a coincidence is probably pretty close. Now, that's okay that it's in here. But I think it's kind of peculiar and something worth thinking about. By chance, only used once in Scripture, there are people every day that we are by chance their neighbor. Like the people who pull out in front of us and go really slow in the car. As I mentioned earlier, the people who serve us. The people we pass in the aisles of the store, since we can all do that now. We have to ask ourselves, who are the by chance neighbors? Someone who is near, someone we're associated with. As I mentioned, this includes those who live next to us. This includes people who we go to church with. And this even includes the people we see on social media. We need to show compassion and love to those who we are by chance associated with. The scripture tells us, You never know. You may, by chance, entertain an angel unaware. You ever wondered about that? That's a whole other sermon. But I want us to understand this as we close. The reality is, even by chance, and even though we only know so many people, it is literally impossible for us to do this correctly it is impossible for us to love people as we should it's impossible for us to love the Lord as he deserves that doesn't mean we stop trying and it doesn't mean we get a pass so what are the lessons the first one is we need to set aside our prejudice if there are any and show love and compassion That can be really hard. Everyone just kind of sat there and looked at me. Think about someone you hate. Go ahead and admit it, because God already knows, right? There's someone you really, really, okay, fine. Think about someone you strongly dislike. (laughs) Is that easier to swallow? You're supposed to love that person. Think about a group of people you don't care for. And you just don't want to associate with them. Maybe you don't hate them. You're just like, you know, the way you act, like, that's not for me. That can be a sinful act, or it can be non-sinful in just a way you don't enjoy doing things. If you're around them, you're supposed to love them. Our neighbor, the second lesson, our neighbor is anyone we encounter or are near. Our neighbor is anyone we encounter or are near. The third lesson is orthopraxy and orthodoxy are both important. You must know the truth, and you must do the truth. You have to have correct both, correct knowledge and correct action. If you do not have correct knowledge, you will not have correct action. But if you do not have correct action, your knowledge is completely useless, just like the lawyers. And then last... Keeping the law is impossible, which is why we need a Savior. That's why we needed someone who came to earth and lived this perfectly. Not only did Jesus know absolutely everything, he was 100% right on his doctrines. Let me just pause there and just let you know something, okay? I will guarantee you I am not 100% right on my doctrines. 2,000 years after he came, I'm not the first one to get it all right, okay? I have things I don't know. I have things I don't understand. And I guarantee you, I have practices that I, uh, doctrines that are probably wrong. But I try my hardest to make sure that I am as right as I possibly can. And you should too. But he came with perfect doctrine. And then he lived a perfect life. And that allows me to have forgiveness. And that gives me a model that I should aim for. We should be like Christ, which is where we get the term Christians. It means little Christs, to be like him. That is our goal. That is our aim. And if our aim is to be like him, then we must know the right doctrine and the right truth as best as we can. And we must do the right thing with all the strength that we have, which means we must love him first and second to love those who are around us. And so as we go out this week, my challenge to you is love those who you come in contact with. Show compassion. Be patient, even if it costs you something. At least two days' worth of work it cost the Samaritan. Probably three, when you add up that he spent the first night with him, bandaged him up. Who knows? Maybe he got in trouble with his boss because he was a day late to work. I don't know. You get the idea. It cost him something. Loving your neighbor may cost you something. Maybe financially. Maybe time. Maybe your happiness. I don't know what it will cost you. But what I want you to understand is it's worth the price. Because to know and not do is wrong. And to do and not know is wrong as well. So when we go throughout this week, look for ways. Look for your neighbors. Look for the one who just gets under your skin. Look for the one you dislike. Show them love. Show them mercy. Show them compassion. Doesn't mean you're a pushover. Doesn't mean you empty all of your money out. There are limits to how we show love and help. Again, a whole nother sermon, but understand my point. You're to love our neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? Are you living a life of correct doctrine and correct practice? Let's close in prayer.